Hello and welcome to Notes from Nash. Today's guest is Professor Yelena Bogdanovich. Dr. Yelena Bogdanovich is an architect and a historian of art and architecture. Professor Bogdanovich received her bachelor in architecture degree from the University of Belgrade, her master's in art and art history from Vanderbilt University, and her PhD in MA in art and archaeology from Princeton. Her books such as Icons of Space, Advances in Hierotopy, and The Framing of Sacred Space, The Canopy, and The Byzantine Church all explore the nature of symbols manifest in architecture and their transportative power. Moreover, Professor Bogdanovich is interested in the nature of space and how different disciplines represent it. Even more interestingly, Professor Bogdanovich believes that the gap between math and art is essentially non-existent. This is truly a most fascinating conversation that I truly think you will enjoy. Here's my conversation with Dr. Yelena Bogdanovich. What is architecture? Well, that's a fantastic question. <laughs> and uh, I would say it is both creative and intellectual discipline that is focusing on human-made environment. And that said, it, uh, it is related to anything that is three-dimensional and spatial, but also temporal. So essentially four dimensions. <laughs> mm -hmm. A question that constantly comes up to me for architecture, and it's still kind of boggles me and bothers mm -hmm. me is, is architecture more of an art or a math? Mm -hmm. And in my definition of architecture as a means of communication, then it comes clear that it is both math and art. I look at math as a language, not as a science. And uh, the same in the same way, I look at art as a way of communicating the ideas and various kinds of meanings. And art becomes, in, in that regard, uh, the language itself. So in my world, uh, architecture is both math and art. Uh, can you expand on this idea of math as a language? Mm -hmm. I've never really heard that articulated before, mm -hmm. but I also don't really spend much time on the mathematical sides mm -hmm. of things. So. Mm -hmm. Well, most often when we speak about sciences, we would think maybe of astronomy, uh, maybe about biology, and uh, all the roles that these uh, sciences and scientific disciplines will have. Well, math is a way of communicating by numbers through geometry. And um, in my world, math is predominantly language of communication that is defined by, uh, by, by mathematical discipline itself, but it, it, it can be very rigorous and very open uh, in a way how you define the language. It, Simply put, when I think, for example, about binary system, we can communicate a lot only just by using zeros and ones. Mm -hmm. And this is basis uh, for many of the computer programming and uh, other sciences. Um, and uh, we can use, for example, decimal system. We can, we can decide to communicate by using uh, geometrical principles. And uh, in that regard, I think, Math is predominantly language of communication that is um, very multicultural, if you wish, or just devoid of many of the cultural uh, um, baggages that we usually have in uh, communication when we use language, mm -hmm. as we know it, like English language of 
mothers. Right, mm-hmm. and as you were talking, I guess it also made sense to me to think of programming languages. Mm-hmm. Obviously, math is a form of language. Mm-hmm. And that was an interesting mm-hmm. point you made that it doesn't carry the cultural baggages. Mm-hmm. So it is a universal language in many exactly. ways. Exactly, exactly. So throughout your years, you've had many students on many different levels of academia. Mm-hmm. Who would you say were the more interesting students? Were they the ones that were more inclined to think of architecture as a math uh, of it as an art, which one would you pick? Well, I always avoid any kind of binary definitions, sure. <laughs> sure, uh, math or art. And uh, um, I always look at all my uh, students as individuals, mm-hmm. unique individuals, and uh, um, we all have um, various kinds of skills, and, uh, and um, we're all different, so I would not be so fast to, to make any kind of statistical or big data right. analysis to say uh, uh, anything about my students just by looking at their mathematical skills or um, knowledge of using math in architectural discipline. Very often it is uh, related really to uh, the use of geometry and uh, maybe uh, parts of architecture that are related to civil engineering uh, perhaps. And then um, the artistic part, creative part, that we usually associate with various kinds of arts, not only visual arts, but music, for example, uh, they are also mathematical in a way. Whenever we speak about proportions in artistic composition, uh, whether it's a, a musical composition, whether it is a painting, again, we're using language of math. Right. So I would say most successful students or most interesting students or uh, most challenging students are uh, those who are engaging with both. So I will not be so um, uh, so fast to make any kind of definite conclusion. Fair enough, fair enough. How does it maybe break down mm-hmm. what it looks like to view architecture mathematically mm-hmm. and then view it artistically? Quite often, people would think that viewing architecture mathematically it's not necessarily visual, quite often, because we have this idea about math as something which is abstract, but art is also very, can be very, very abstract in a way how it conveys meanings beyond what is represented. And in my world, the two are so close to each other, I they see. converge. <laughs> I know that uh, we're maybe going into circles, but uh, um, that's why I, I would say architecture is a fantastic discipline and, and so engaging and and brings so much passion because you can bring different kinds of uh, communicative nodes, whether they're more mathematical or whether they're more um, visual or, or um, sound uh, or multisensorial uh, that we usually associate with various kinds of arts, including performative arts and theatrical arts, uh, mm-hmm. eventually they would they would converge. That's very interesting because I've always thought of architecture, I guess, in two camps where there's mm-hmm. those who think of structures and mm-hmm. formations that are, provide utility, mm-hmm. and then those who enjoy the ornamentations, mm-hmm. the beauty, the aesthetics. Mm-hmm. But you see mm-hmm. both of them mm-hmm. fundamentally mm-hmm. working together. And uh, Maybe this is also part of my training in uh, in our world of architecture. Very often, when we study uh, some principles, how we judge good architecture, what is successful architecture, it's never uh, the result 
where you can have oh it checks all the points uh, of um, uh, civil engineering or or it stands uh, well um, because how on earth then we would distinguish architecture from civil engineering right. <laughs> and then aesthetic and, uh, appeal is needed so both uh, um, of these sides are critical so uh, uh, and that's why I also didn't uh, define uh, architecture as exclusively building. Most people think about uh, architecture as, a, as, as some kind of a discipline that is focusing mostly on designing building, but uh, architects who are reaching a certain level of maturity or many of the architects that very often we highlight or these are successful architects, they would define a, a little bit different their expertise. They would say we are expert in manipulating space or defining the space or uh, articulating experiences within the space and building can uh, function as a shell, but architecture is never all only shelter. And architecture can be also an uh, uh, environment that is human design, the human made, that is not a building. Mm. A wall can be architecture. <laughs> and there are also architects who are proud to say we are architects because uh, we design, we think conceptually about the environment, but it doesn't mean that we're building, that we're making buildings. And um, this is, again, beauty of architecture that is so expansive. It's almost like a question, what is art or what is math? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, definitely, um, uh, whenever we speak about good, successful examples of architecture, it's not only because it's beautiful, uh, artistic, if you wish. It's not only because it, it is a building that stands. Uh, but uh, quite often it is because it merges multiple layers of mm. what a successful building is. Right. That's a beautiful thing when you're able to do multiple things at the same time mm -hmm. that aren't obviously the same thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to this idea of architecture not solely being the building mm -hmm. on West End Avenue, for example. Mm -hmm. It's something more than that. What mm -hmm. are some examples of non-obvious manifestations of architecture? Mm. Um, so... Uh, you can start with landscape hmm. design. And uh, we are speaking about, uh, again, uh, different definitions uh, about architecture. Um, architecture is a discipline and how it is studied in the United States is relatively young. Hmm. And most often people think, okay, architecture is about buildings. And then nowadays, uh, in American academia, for example, we have various sub-disciplines because it's so expansive. So uh, some architects will decide to uh, become actually experts in landscape architecture. Others will become experts in interior design. Some uh, will become uh, experts in performative spaces. Uh, soundscapes can be very, very architectural. And um, uh, in addition to... Uh, just uh, a structure, building, um, everything else can be architectural. It can be microarchitecture, just enough uh, that it can be related to um, human presence and human occupation. Um, but sometimes it can be also visionary architecture that can never be built. I kind of want to go back mm -hmm. where you mentioned It's very interesting for me particularly mm -hmm. because architecture is something that I have not explored very much. Mm -hmm. 
And going to your point, America is a culture that is not is very young to architecture, mm-hmm. and that's probably reflected in the academia still, mm-hmm. in universities and high schools. Mm-hmm. What is an example of a culture that is you would argue is architecturally mature or is more rich than the United States, and why is that the case? I will definitely be biased. Right, sure, fair enough. (laughs) Because I would uh, project my ideas of good architecture, and it's always architecture that works with the environment. Mm. And um, 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 for that reason, maybe over time, I became more and more interested in sacred architecture. And it's not uh, related to a specific culture, but uh, mostly to accomplishments where... um, design is very much considerate of, of the environment. So I'm mostly interested in religious architecture, but we can also take a look. Uh, and uh, when I say religious architecture associated with uh, um, European cultures or Mediterranean region, mostly um, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Uh, but, uh, for example, in Shinto religion, uh, uh, there is also quite a good sense of uh, architecture and what uh, architecture can be. It's not always a building that will stand for eternity. Sometimes the entire process of rebuilding, using resources, being responsible to them, uh, would uh, be part of designing sacred shrines. The same can be uh, said for some of the uh, practices in Africa. And, uh, uh, for example, if you look at uh, Islamic architecture in, in Africa, quite often it comes almost like a paradox that the rulers who are occasionally the wealthiest in the world because of the resources uh, would decide to build mosques or uh, in Islamic compounds by using mud and mud brick. And then they would use this idea of communal rebuilding and participation and, and being uh, 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 sensitive to the environment. So uh, for me, these would be the examples that would stand out that I'm particularly interested in. But uh, of course, um, people are having different uh, approaches and uh, this is the beauty of architecture that everybody can have their own take, what they would like to um, uh, to focus on, what they would like to highlight is a good architecture. So uh, that said, I would not say that America is a mature. We have fantastic examples of landscape architecture, fantastic examples of buildings as architecture in, in the United States. It's huge. It's also the reality of diversities. Mm, fair enough. Do you think the trajectory of architecture in this country is headed in a good place or a bad place? From your understanding. Uh, mm-hmm. For my understanding, no, I, I never have this kind of judgmental opinion. And, mm. uh, um, what uh, I would say, um, architecture is having its own life. Very often, uh, I say we architects don't need to worry ever because there was architecture even before text, prehistoric architecture already, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and there is no way that uh, we should worry about our discipline. It's mostly how it is presented, how it is valued. I also tell my students quite often uh, um, during uh, Egyptian times, architects would be respected so much they would be pronounced gods. And very often, uh, when we speak about um, professions nowadays and so forth, uh, 
we can even say from Egyptian uh, uh, society when architect <laughs> is divinity, everything goes down. <laughs> but still, we are living, <laughs> we are living uh, our lives. Uh, most often, architects are passionate about what they are doing. Uh, I just had a, a, a short discussion chat with a student after class this morning, and uh, he approached me, and um, uh, we talked uh, a little bit. Uh, about uh, his interest in one particular architect who is also designing a, a house uh, 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 for his family. And he said, well, we were surprised. He is already in his 90s and he's so focused and passionate and smiling. And this is, uh, this is essentially telling uh, uh, loads about architects and uh, their uh, vision uh, about their profession. If you're speaking about business, architecture as a business is always bad business. And uh, most architects are realizing th uh, this at some point, and uh, many of them are still staying <laughs> with architecture because it brings such a uh, professional fulfillment and uh, many other um, uh, fulfillments that are that are good enough. <laughs> Why is architecture typically bad business? You can look this uh, uh, through some practical uh, uh, references that we can take. Whenever you look at uh, like five or 10 most stressful professions nowadays, you will learn about police officers, firefighters, military, people who are working in the ER, and all of a sudden they're architects. Um, it's extremely stressful job. Wow. It's never nine to five. <laughs> uh, and then uh, it's a relatively uh, bad business because in order to stay in the black, uh, when you close the, uh, uh, the office at the end of the fiscal year, um, if you had like five to 10% of success, simply put, if you had 10 projects that you worked on, um, uh, from concept design until the end, and one is making money, you are in good position. And um, depending on a, on a market in New York, the percentages are even less. Um, in Central Asia nowadays, even less and less so. So definitely it's not a business that is making big margin. Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely a business that can catapult you into the field of celebrity architects occasionally. Right. Um, but um, it's also an honorable job like um, in other professions. So um, there are less stressful aspects of architectural professions. Some of them I mentioned, uh, uh, like, um, uh, for example, when you work uh, for historic pre uh, preservation heritage, quite often you have a stable job. Mm -hmm. Uh, because there is a continual interest of various uh, uh, groups of people across the globe to preserve something from the past. Um, it's still very stressful just to maintain uh, uh, the knowledge, to uh, be able to assess uh, the project as it is uh, given. This is very, very often not a project that most people would take as architectural example or or, uh, or something that is uh, uh, highly ranked or in terms of how we look at professional success and career. Um, uh, some uh, architects would decide to find their niche and design schools all their life. Some, uh, uh, some architects are having uh, um, uh, their specialization maybe only for infrastructure. Very often we'll look at buildings or we'll look at uh, 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 some environments and we underestimate how infrastructure is also quite important. So occasionally uh, 
uh, we would have like internal jokes when um, a colleague would say, and I made my career just by designing elevators. <laughs> <laughs> right, they're so important. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. The infrastructure that runs the lives of mm-hmm. millions of mm-hmm. billions of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, what would we do without the architects that designed mm-hmm. them and made them fit into our lives? Mm-hmm. But typically that sort of work goes unrecognized and mm-hmm. unappreciated. That's mm-hmm. how integral it is to mm-hmm. our lives, mm-hmm. right? Now I want to transition into mm-hmm. your work. You have mm-hmm. a book titled Icons of Space, mm-hmm. Advances of, help me out here. Hierotopy. Hierotopy. Mm-hmm. What is the premise of this book? Yeah, hierotopy is neologism, <laughs> mm. uh, definitely. Um, uh, it's, uh, it is coined by, uh, from two words, uh, from Greek, uh, hieros, sacros, uh, sacred, and uh, topos, uh, location, space, um, and... Um, Essentially, um, this is a discipline that the Russian scholar, um, uh, art historian, and somebody who is interested in Byzantine sacred architecture, uh, predominantly medieval churches of the East and uh, medieval Russia, uh, started to promote uh, um, as, as a new discipline that will look at these extraordinary spaces, um, not only in terms of what is in front of us, but how these extraordinary spaces can convey the meanings or spaces beyond us. And um, he comes with this um, term um, in 2000, and uh, many scholars across the globe followed. And by the time he reached his 60th uh, uh, birthday, we figured out maybe we can uh, offer a fast drift. So essentially, uh, a group of scholars essentially coming from various disciplines. Uh, I'm coming from architecture and history of art and architecture, but also scholars who are coming from art history exclusively, from literary studies, um, uh, from anthropology, from theological studies. We would gather and try to understand this language of uh, of. Um, divine of of sacred spaces and and uh, how people are uh, trying to communicate uh, ideas about uh, about uh, sacredness and in um, Byzantine studies icon is not just an image very often we associate icons with religious images where you have a depiction either of a cross or whether you have a depiction of Christ and the saints or some kind of religious event that would commemorate the life and ministry of Christ and the like. But um, we can also speak about icon, like in computer science, you have a tiny image, like a tiny door, a portal that is literally taking you to another level. And this is how the Byzantines, uh, um, uh, Christians in the East, would understand these images. So they're beyond the material, they're beyond the panel uh, itself. And um, we try to understand uh, essentially these landscapes of sacredness uh, uh, that the icons are bringing forward and to include the multisensorial experiences associated with space. And all the time when I'm speaking about architecture, I'm highlighting architecture in relation to space, not necessarily always location, not only uh, uh, something that we uh, can designate on the map or here on Earth, 
really approaching uh, this definition of expansive landscapes and just space. And quite often, then scholars in uh, scientific disciplines will come back and they will say, you know, we are physicists or we are astronomers. We just describe because we don't have a definition of space. And those of you in the so-called humanist disciplines uh, are just speaking freely <laughs> about space as it is a, a given fact that everybody knows what space is. Uh, long story short, um, um, this is in a nutshell uh, what um, we were trying to accomplish with this book. It's essentially a sackful. Originally, um, uh, we, we gathered and uh, we had impressive material and then it came uh, uh, really uh, to the break into two books. One uh, that was published in Moscow first, um, uh, with scholars publishing predominantly in Russian language, and um, and um, they decided to go with their material uh, um, uh, with publication there. And then the rest of us, I edited both of these volumes, and the rest of us uh, uh, gathered uh, all the material in English because we had to decide on language. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't write it in math. Yeah, right? <laughs> and and for some publishers, uh, it was only English language, mm. and and for some other people, it was why would why shouldn't be published in some other languages? So we it was essentially a, a compromise. So we tried to accomplish uh, essentially uh, a thank you, a big project uh, about uh, uh, Alexei Lidov, who gathered us all to speak about sacred space that is both location, sacred location, but is also this evocative, uh, sacred, expansive space associated um, uh, with spirituality, simply put. Wow. There's so much to unpack here. I want to kind of go back mm -hmm. where you mentioned how space is understood differently by, say, the physicists and mm -hmm. the mathematicians mm -hmm. than are the artists mm -hmm. and the literary mm -hmm. theorists. Mm -hmm. Can you break down that split? Well, uh, I would say uh, the major one is that we quite often, if we speak about the we on the other side, when we, uh, where we are architects, artists, uh, uh, people in the humanities, we have our preconceived idea, this is space for us, like this is a sacred building, whether it's a church, whether it's a mosque, whether it is a Buddhist temple, or this is a, a sacred landscape, if you speak about Native American spirituality, that is not necessarily about the built environment, mm -hmm. uh, but about nature again. Right. And we would just start from this premise, and then we will continue with our investigations. Well, for the physicists, you will have to have a definition, or for the mathematicians, you will have to have a definition to pursue, or uh, if you have space, or if you don't have a definite definition what space is for you, you describe it. So uh, that's why I said uh, uh, astronomers will describe the universe, and we still don't know anything, or we don't know a lot, or we don't have a definite answer about this, but they would always highlight, we describe, we don't have a definition. And uh, I would say this is just intellectual approach that we have, and it's mostly based into uh, divisions that we have uh, from our just educational background, where we start and, and how we approach uh, uh, what space is. So very often architects would say, we manipulate the space, we create the space of experiences, and the building is the frame. 
Right. <laughs> I see where you're going there. Yeah. But so just to summarize, the physicists are saying there's no way we can define space while the people on the humanity side are making everything a space. Exactly. So <laughs> how do you deal with that? How do you define space? I don't define it. I, I, so I, I also uh, come to the point that when I went to architecture, I also had this, I would say, one view that I will become an architect and design beautiful buildings um, that are also rational, functional, that are standing well. And then um, you realize that uh, it's, or at least in my case, I, I got to the point that uh, I'm less and less interested in buildings themselves and more and more into experiences that some buildings can can convey or the the environments you know uh, that are that are special that are that are different mm -hmm. than everyday uh, experiences or everyday spaces and i just surpassed this idea that i need to provide a definition and in our book for example icons of space um, uh, uh, we would simply simply say that we are dealing with this iconic understanding of uh, of uh, sacred spaces that are uh, not entirely abstract, but they are also not entirely only buildings or specific locations, and that it's perfectly fine to speak about sacred space as a combination of two. And then we would move on in our book. This is also not to say that we're not going to face or that we're not already facing harsh criticism mm. um, um, because of lack of specificity that somebody would like to have at disposal. But it's also the beauty of uh, academic pursuit that uh, sometimes it's more about questions. Sometimes it's more about describing. Sometimes it's also more about breaking the silos uh, than uh, just really looking at the final product and what it can be. Right, and especially with something so abstract and mm -hmm. theoretical, mm -hmm. it doesn't really do anybody any benefit to stick to a hard definition. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. What is image theory? Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. that's what your book is basically uh, yeah. addressing. Yeah, well, in uh, again, image theory in uh, maybe computer science or in technology or business will be something uh, completely else. For us in uh, arts and architecture, it will be really theoretical considerations about images. And we would very often start with pictorial images. Uh, for those of us who are interested in icons, we would then uh, try to understand them not only as visual representations, but also as objects and um, how they can convey the other appearance of itself or something completely different. and. Um, um, this is a theoretical uh, proposition for understanding visual arts um, um, beyond objects themselves, but also as, as intellectual concepts. And um, uh, there are a number of scholars who would uh, uh, try to define image theory. Uh, for example, recently deceased Hans Belting was one of these uh, kind of scholars who would be very much interested in anthropology, the way how people are communicating the ideas and what the images would mean uh, to them. And uh, he is very important for us in Byzantine studies, for those of us who are interested in icons themselves. 
because uh, uh, he would propose his own theory that is, again, uh, something that is not strictly defined, that somebody uh, would uh, easily contradict or... Uh, um, or, or or would challenge, which is okay, uh, because like with uh, any theory, um, it's not easy to prove it, especially in the humanities. And then uh, uh, in in art-based or architecturally based uh, disciplines, it's also merging with philosophy, where you do not necessarily need to provide a proof, uh, but okay. you are describing something that. Many people will uh, will reflect upon, even if they are not uh, able to to provide a very very uh, definite um, uh, a take on it. So, long story short, uh, uh, for example, how I can probably explain to the, uh, explain this. Very often, when we have religious icons uh, of Byzantine type of icons, we would look at them and we would say, okay, if we look at the image of Christ, is it the portrait of Christ? how we have an image that is capturing the essence, not just likeness. Mm. And this was essentially the title of Hans Obelting's book about uh, 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 image and likeness. Something beyond exactly speaking about this iconic uh, uh, proposition uh, uh, when we speak about space as well. And then we come to um, other more um, uh, controversial topics uh, for example, for Byzantine um, um, religious people, a relic, essentially a piece of bone or a piece of cloth that was in touch with a special uh, um, uh, person uh, during life or uh, in, uh, uh, in death, but for religious people, very often there is no death, there is no the hand. Uh, uh, how is it possible that you, you touch the bone and then this bone is making the reference to the presence of a person with an image. So it's definitely not the likeness. And then some scholars would propose that, uh, for example, when you put the images in a building, now we're looking maybe at the church or a religious structure of various kinds, um, um, this is the way how you are opening the horizons or breaking these landscapes be beyond the materiality of the frame of the building itself. And um, it uh, can be um, essentially articulated not only through visual terms, but also through sound, through rhythm. That's why quite often in, in these kind of spaces, um, uh, we're speaking about the importance of humidity as well, the, the importance of, the, of, of, um, of acoustics, uh, uh, haptic qualities. Uh, uh, quite often, even contemporary architects would uh, push the boundaries what architecture can convey when we imagine architecture beyond the visual <laughs> and, and how they're eventually converging. Um, uh, some would even go so far in terms of linguistic propositions, whether we can speak about um, these kind of experiences that are not related only to the words, whether images are also allowing um, uh, this kind of communication or uh, just experiences um, uh, that are beyond visual again, haptic touch, experience of uh, personal space and the like. So I'm making a lot of tangents, uh, but just to um, uh, open um, 
uh, to you this idea of icons of space and how we gather from various disciplines and uh, how we try to uh, essentially make our own contribution what image theory is that it's not only about literally a, a panel with visual representation uh, that we can directly relate to and um, and that uh, a building with images is not just spatial setup um, uh, almost like a museum setup uh, for uh, for this kind of uh, 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 sacred images, but uh, that it becomes a space on its own right that is multisensorial. And there are quite those scholars working on this. I just mentioned a couple of them, um, but this is essentially uh, uh, how in this book uh, we are trying to bring our own perspectives, mostly looking at um, Byzantine um, uh, solutions and uh, Byzantine spirituality and religiosity. So icons capture the essence of a thing, not necessarily likeness. So in exactly. other words, they're not trying to represent reality as accurately as possible, mm -hmm. but the effectual effect mm -hmm. on a person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And because of that, mm -hmm. when we're interacting with icons, we're taken, in theory, to a different place, mm -hmm. a different realm. Mm -hmm. Does that sound mm -hmm. about right? And that's absolutely right. And you're speaking from the perspective of uh, the so-called phenomenologies right, who are right. focusing on uh, on perception and phenomenology, and what uh, we are going uh, we are trying to push with uh, 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 with these two books about um, iconicity and icons of space and sacred icons themselves is to even um, push the boundaries and uh, try to uh, just make a philosophical proposition. Can we speak about the similar mechanism that are not necessarily starting from us? Because in phenomenological perspective, a person is a center, and everything is related to right. to, to to the sense of self, um, and um, and this is yet another uh, proposition that the, this book is trying to to convey. Uh, uh, and and to probe and uh, and uh, this is how it differs from phenomenological studies. Right. Mm -hmm. And I want to touch again on the mm -hmm. essence and the likeness because mm -hmm. I think it's very powerful. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of film photography mm -hmm. and using film cameras. Mm -hmm. The thing with film photography is speaking just to that thing you you just mentioned that. A film photograph is not capturing reality accurately, say like a digital camera mm -hmm. is. A digital camera, you point and you shoot, you're getting mm -hmm. a very accurate representation mm -hmm. of what we have here. Mm -hmm. You can do that with your phone. Mm -hmm. Now, if I slip in a 35 millimeter film into my mm -hmm. camera mm -hmm. and I shoot analog, the print will be different. It will have a tint over it. Mm -hmm. It will represent colors mm -hmm. differently. Mm -hmm. But the film photograph is capturing the emotional, the, the mood mm -hmm. and the essence of the scene far better than just showing me what mm -hmm. this brick looks like. Mm -hmm. So I think that's powerful. Mm -hmm. But I also want to now talk about uh, an Austrian uh, psycho uh, mm -hmm. uh, psych psychologist, but he was also doing psychoanalysis, uh, Carl Jung mm -hmm. and his idea of the mandala mm -hmm. and images mm -hmm. and not very much what you were just talked about mm -hmm. reminded me of him. Mm -hmm. Do you know if there's any similarities between the two? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're speaking about the archetypes and uh, uh, this is uh, 
the book ju- that just came out like three days ago on, uh, on, on February uh, 16th that uh, with a group of uh, my peers, we pushed the idea of a type and archetype mm. and what it means in religious landscape. And uh, we are proposing that we cannot speak about um, type only, mm. that the archetype is important. And then, of course, uh, uh, we consulted uh, what's happening in psychoanalysis and uh, what's happening in the religious mind. And there is a big question about reality and what reality is. It will uh, literally go to uh, some of the philosophical concepts that we can base, for example, in, in, in uh, Western philosophy to platonic understanding of what reality actually is. Um, but in religious societies, the archetype, the ultimate archetype is God. And divine beauty, right? And this is where the aesthetic uh, again comes forward. And um, uh, in that book, um, again, uh, we would just gather and try to understand uh, uh, this relation between the essence and uh, the perception in our world, and uh, and um, uh, what matters when we speak about different kinds of images, different kinds of um, of. Um, of structures and um, uh, different kinds of artistic expressions, spirituality, call it as you wish. And um, you you just pointed <laughs> a spot on some of the ways how we are continuing to think about um, uh, these big questions um, about sacredness and sacred right. space. And uh, in this book, we'll just go um, back to, to the material evidence, to the text that we have, try to again to describe them, quite often you cannot provide a holistic theory. Mm-hmm. And quite often I, I feel completely safe and I would say it's okay, we still don't have the universal theory in physics. So if these guys are comfortable with this, <laughs> we are comfortable as well. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay for us to probe various questions what uh, essentially um, uh, uh, objective uh, capture of the reality is. And um, for that those uh, reason, I'm interested in, in digital humanities. And we come with this idea, for example, if I have a drone with camera and just put it inside of a building, it will record everything. Because even when you have a camera, whether it's a digital or analog, it's your mind that is essentially right. making the point of view. But uh, still, even if we make loose these requirements and we just let the camera go around, it's capturing our reality, something that we have created. And uh, this is something that we simply say in, in our investigations of sacred icons that it's related to human-made uh, um, environments uh, while leaving open possibilities that not everything is human-made. Uh, long story short, uh, I would say it's still... I would say romantic vision that when we have digital capturing of the reality or the surroundings around us, uh, um, um, that this kind of approach is more objective. Indeed, quite often you will simply figure out, oh my gosh, I never thought about this question or I never thought I would focus my gaze into this part of a building, for example, and realize and that I can actually now reconstruct something uh, simply because I'm reshifting or refocusing my question. It can be very, very... Um, a practical like uh, um, 
for example, in, in a project of digital humanities that we are working on, we literally put a drain, uh, drone pardon me, uh, with camera going around the building and then outside and they realize actually it's not facing east. Why not? Because all churches should face east. But it's cute just for just a little bit, so it's not a mistake. It was with purpose. And then we realized that um, uh, essentially, most likely, it was uh, for purpose. And for hundreds of years of studies of this particular building, it would be just that, oh, these are medieval mines, you know, they had maybe perfect uh, design, but then once they started to build, they made a little bit of mistake, and this is how it ended up. And then uh, we realized even Hagia Sophia, which is like the example of Byzantine architecture, it's not facing east. And the major discussion will be then they had to fit the building within the urban texture and so forth. But um, another scholar independently for us actually showed already that um, they made um, uh, um, this, um, uh, this disalignment from the cardinal directions with purpose to highlight the Christmas day, which was the consecration day of a, of a building. So long story short, uh, digital humanity sometimes can just reveal unexpected results, mm. can reveal something new, but we are still looking at the environment that is familiar to us, that is essentially the environment that we made, that we are still making the variables and propositions what what should be done. And indeed more objective, I agree, um, And it, but still I would say a little bit still romantic because it is us who are defining the variables and parameters. Right. Do you believe in God? Yes. Why? <laughs> well, there is no reason why. I would just believe in God. <laughs> that is, I, I feel like everything up to now mm -hmm. we've said is mm -hmm. almost a proof mm -hmm. for your mm -hmm. justification mm -hmm. for God. Mm -hmm. Would you say that? Well, I would definitely say I'm a religious person. Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot about image theory and Carl Jung and mm -hmm. meaning and extracting meaning. And now I want to kind of transition into architecture as a discipline, as an art mm -hmm. form mm -hmm. alongside other mm -hmm. art forms. Uh, when I was talking to some architects not too long ago, mm -hmm. I was just interested. I believe I went to one of the club mm -hmm. meetings mm -hmm. and this kind of came, this kind of snapped in my head and I thought about it for a little bit because I think one of the architects mentioned it. Uh, but here's my question. Why does it take longer for architecture to incorporate artistic movements such as modernism as compared to other art mediums such as poetry? Well, poetry, you can say it's linguistic, it's temporal. You recite the poem and that's it. Your client can be one person, can be billion per uh, people who are reading uh, the poem. And when we speak about architecture, we are speaking about highly complex creative discipline that is um, um, that can be reduced to one-on-one -on -one relation uh, in terms of the architect and the client who is um, uh, uh, commissioning the project or uh, occasionally even the architect can be the client so when we speak about even autobiographical projects uh, but long story short uh, if we reduce this to the individual building or a garden of a, or, or, or a design, um, uh, even conceptual design, um, it takes a little bit more. Um, and uh, it also takes a little bit more time and approval 
uh, almost like uh, as we discussed, we come with this idea of what architecture is as a creative discipline, and most 99% of people will just first imagine beautiful building, full stop. And then it's easy to break the, the boundaries, to break the frame, once you know the rules, once you have this concept, okay, this is architecture. And um, I would say this is, this is the major premise. And um, that's why I highlighted architecture is also philosophical. It's also highly conceptual. And uh, uh, to be recognized as, as a moment, sometimes it's occasionally even enough to have one building, like the steel. <laughs> which was uh, one example where you had very, very closely tight uh, uh, developments with other uh, um, uh, stylistic developments. But uh, quite often we are speaking about different scale, massive scale. Right. And not only is it a larger scale, you're now in our modern day, you're dealing with bureaucracies, with oh, money yeah. flow. And maybe that yeah. was always the case. It was always the case. Right. It was always the case with built structures. Do you think that's a negative of architecture, a positive, or maybe neither? It's, it's, it's neither. It's just different. Mm. It's just different. I think it's interesting because architecture affects us on a much broader scale for a lot more people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when modernity does mm -hmm. hit the apartments mm -hmm. on 23rd mm -hmm. Avenue, mm -hmm. it's far more impactful on a larger group of people than if T.S. Eliot publishes his poems. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. What is your favorite singular work of architecture? You know, Agia Sophie. <laughs> Let me, can you search that up for me? I want to kind of like look at it. Maybe we can break it down together. Uh, if you can just type it. Yeah. All right. It's a mosque in uh, Istanbul. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I believe my dad has been here before. Mm -hmm. It's and, and maybe you can describe it because I, I don't know how to describe architecture. <laughs> well, this is a building that was built in, the, in, in its current uh, shape in the 6th century mm. and enlarged uh, with, addition, uh, with the four minarets that you see uh, that are standing for the recognition of a building as a mosque. Currently, it also serves as a mosque. Originally, it was built as a Byzantine church. Wow, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was dedicated to um, the epithet of God, mm. Sophia, Holy Wisdom. Mm. And, right. uh, and um, uh, when the Ottoman Turks conquered um, uh, Constantinople, the capital city of the Byzantine Empire, um, they used it as the first imperial mosque, Hagia Sophia. Mm. Uh, it uh, served a very short period of time uh, as, as a museum during the uh, secular rulership uh, um, in, in Turkey. Um, and uh, more recently, uh, it was converted back to, to serve as a mosque. Mm -hmm. So we're looking really at a religious structure that, was, uh, that had this potential to convey religious experiences and, and, and to be a perfect fit even for competing religions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, definitely uh, a structure that is memorable because of its grand scale, because of um, all of its massive dome, um, because it st still stands today. 
Structurally speaking, it's not perfect. There is no bilateral symmetry that is almost a must uh, for uh, the territory uh, of modern-day Turkey, where we unfortunately know earthquakes are striking quite often, and they can be devastating. Um, uh, When the Byzantines are building, they're simply saying angels are supporting us. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And they're helping us uh, build this impressive structure. It is a building that's actually a third version of the earliest buildings that were built in the very same location. Mm-hmm. And um, I just mentioned it uh, as, uh, as a building uh, um, that uh, for a long period of time would be just understood, okay, this is a pinnacle, this is what you can do when you have a lot of money, a lot of taxpayers' money. Mm-hmm. Emperor Justinian, Byzantine, uh, Roman Emperor, who was Christian, uh, literally poured the entire treasury <laughs> almost into uh, making this impressive structure that still stands today. And um, it was covered in golden mosaics. Wow. We are literally speaking about <laughs> <laughs> a, a very, very luxurious uh, decoration inside. And uh, when it became a mosque, uh, most of the mosaics actually stayed. Um, uh, some of the religious images were covered um, in plaster or whitewashed. Some of them were covered in uh, textiles, and this is essentially how uh, right now some of the religious images uh, are also covered as it serves as a mosque. So. Right, because of the difference in religions, Islam prohibiting and displays. Yeah, and this is also a story in its own right, uh, because one... Um, the Ottoman Turks, Muslims, uh, uh, took uh, the mosque. They didn't cover all the images. And uh, I have a good, uh, so for example, the image of the Mother of God uh, uh, that is prominently displayed in the conch just above the sanctuary, um, uh, originally uh, in in the church, uh, would remain because uh, Muslims are recognizing uh, Jesus as one of the prophets in the line uh, until uh, Prophet Muhammad. And um, uh, they would also uh, uh, recognize Mary, only not her um, epithet that she is mother of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the details uh, of uh, of religions are brought forward, this is essentially when we see some of the um, breaks in terms of of differences. Right. And and uh, and a good colleague and, and peer of mine who is uh, studying. Um, medieval architecture, but predominantly uh, Muslim, uh, 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 recently just published an article that uh, even the mihrab is having references to Mary, mm. original right. one. <laughs> so right. quite often we'll look at uh, religious spaces that are political always, <laughs> um, uh, also from, from the point of conflict, and uh, occasionally there is a possibility to see how on earth this building was so powerful mm. to convey the sacred meanings to people of different religion. I'm assuming you've been there many times. Mm-hmm. Can you describe the experience of being transported mm-hmm. to that otherworldly place? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, when I visited uh, um, Agia Sophia, it was always when it was serving as a museum. So um, this is n- not the full experience that is associated with uh, religious rites and 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 services, as you can imagine. Um, so uh, for me, um, it would be really to evoke uh, based on 
services elsewhere, how it will be in this kind of a structure that is just ground in scale. And quite often uh, for architects, there is another like um, like a tag that they're megalomaniacs. They like yeah. big buildings. They like ground scale. Um, but uh, the building is impressive. And uh, I like it also um, because... Uh, in contrast to some other uh, large-scale uh, um, buildings that are not having internal partitions inside, I never felt small inside. And this is the beauty of good proportioning, uh, taking into consideration human uh, measurements uh, in designing the structure. And this was something that was, uh, that was taking me a lot into this understanding, okay, this is uh, a, a sacred building. The number of windows is amazing. Very often we think about Gothic cathedrals as buildings that are filled with light because of many windows, but this one is having a lot of windows. Only uh, for the drum just be, uh, below the dome, there are 40 of them. And, and light is one of the material aspects of uh, architectural design that quite often we don't take as, as a given. It's extremely important how we experience space. And uh, this is well lit. Uh, acoustically sound, uh, impressive structure in that regard as well. Do you think people back then had a better sense for architecture than we do now? Again, I would I would not make any kind of a linear evolutionist statements. Mm. I'm I'm very often teaching architectural history, and first thing that I have adopted is again my my bias. I say, even if we look at chronology, this is year one, this is <laughs> like uh, 2023, uh, and um, even we, if we look at history quite often through the line of advancement, um, I, I don't follow this kind of a narrative. A um, uh, world is a miracle. People are different all the time. I don't assume that what uh, was done in the past was, would be understood by everyone. If you have a uh, Byzantine Hagia Sophia or later uh, Imperial Mosque, and nowadays also uh, one of the major mosques in, in, in Turkey, it doesn't mean that um, uh, similar projects cannot be done. It would be the end of humankind and human creativity, mm -hmm. I would say. Uh, it also doesn't mean that in the past, all these buildings or all religious structures were uh, superior. Mm. Very well. Got it. And then that transitions into today. What is your favorite work of architecture in the U.S.? Well, there are so many. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. okay. I thought you were going to say nothing. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, there are so many of them. If I, uh, um, I, I have a variety. Uh, no building is perfect, no architecture yeah. is perfect, but uh, for example, I like uh, Tadao Ando's Pulitzer's uh, uh, Art uh, Center in St. Louis. I like Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, Falling Butter House. Even if uh, we go to major uh, like judgment criteria, Structurally, it's not the best. <laughs> Infrastructurally, it's maybe even the worst. But the way how he is exploring uh, um, built environment and placing it into natural landscape is is something which is still uh, resonating strongly uh, for me. Even if I'm not the biggest fan of Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture uh, in large, um, then um, um, 
very often I do look at the artistic spaces. Uh, uh, that's true. But uh, for example, I just uh, came back from New York City and the New York Public Library. Why not? It's a fantastic example of, of, uh, of architecture. Central Park. Stunning how, uh, how, for example, it resists all the push uh, in terms of business, real estate, <laughs> and, and, and big questions that we have. Uh, it's, it's a landscape. Um, uh, when I go to Arizona, uh, uh, there are so many um, uh, uh, like tiny touches in, in landscape that I would, again, call uh, good architecture. Uh, so many, many of okay. them. I just, I just made a couple of references. Right. What was the one, you, the second reference you made? The falling house? Falling, falling butter house. Mm -hmm. Let me mm -hmm. I look at this. Mm -hmm. The Dawandos is, is a museum, really. Was it falling butter house? Falling water. Oh. <laughs> this is my pronunciation. I apologize. No, no worries. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. Wow. And where is this? This is in Pennsylvania. I actually, uh, my uh, friend, he's a architecture major. He talks about this all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Now, maybe that's, uh, that's also a chance to organize a, a trip. You don't yeah, need right. to go outside of the United States to uh, see good architecture, inspiring architecture. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Wow. No, yeah, that, that, was, uh, that was wholesome to hear so many examples uh, from the U.S. Uh, this is going to be a little bit more personal mm -hmm. for me because I enjoy this architecture a lot. But can you explain uh, new urbanism to me? Mm -hmm. Well, when I did my um, um, graduating thesis, I have diploma in in uh, in architecture uh, as an undergrad. Um, I decided essentially uh, then to tease this idea of what architecture is. So I designed a building and actually designed three of them because I was playing with new urbanism ideas. Oh, I didn't even right. know, but <laughs> I, I was I was very much interested in the so-called mixed use that is associated with new urbanism. In the United States, there are, it's almost like a moment. There are even charters very often going back to traditional values in good, about good life in a city. And in the United States, quite often it is related to the critique that people are so much bound to cars mm. and commute. And uh, uh, um, uh, we are speaking about big segregations in, in terms of how um, the cities are run, um, business quarters, prime real estate uh, 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 um, uh, locations where people are living, how they're living, and alike. And new urbanism emerged from this need to improve the quality of life. And it would uh, directly start with uh, communicative tools, transition, <laughs> uh, 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 really, and, and, and the way uh, what you have in your immediate neighborhood. In many smaller scale towns in America still, you have the downtown area where everybody knows everyone and they're still ne not next to the king. <laughs> so, we're, uh, so uh, but uh, it became almost like utopian concept in, in United States very often um, um, not, not being able to promote all the values 
of what new kind of urbanism and thinking about urban environment and cities can bring to uh, to us uh, in terms of economy, in terms of eco- uh, uh, diversity, um, equity, in terms of um, financials, uh, 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 going back in terms of of uh, of the built and unbuilt, uh, and um, simply put, uh, new urbanism is a big social urban uh, activist uh, movement in United States that is picking up. Uh, some of the ideals uh, what better life in a city can be. Right. For those who don't know, mm-hmm. new urbanism is found in places like Seaside, Florida, mm-hmm. which is very popular. Mm-hmm. I mean, every fifth person I meet here mm-hmm. has a sweatshirt that says mm-hmm. Seaside mm-hmm. on it. But I've been to these places uh, so many times, and every time I go there, there is that transportive effect that you're talking mm-hmm. about of the there isn't much uh, icona, uh, icons present, mm-hmm. but in a way, the city as a whole is an icon. It's, mm-hmm. it's a manifestation mm-hmm. of some sort of some sort of ideology, I think. It is ideology. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And just a little tangent mm-hmm. on the side, mm-hmm. the movie, uh, The Truman Show, <laughs> kind of spins that around <laughs> and makes it evil. But mm-hmm. uh, I think there's something very beautiful about the town. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's collective communion. Mm-hmm. It's, it's walking places. Mm-hmm. It's always biking places. Mm-hmm. Everything is nearby. Mm-hmm. Everything is brightly lit. It's always bright and colorful. Uh, and just, I, I have to show you some of the photographs I took there when I was uh, there. And this just speaks to capturing the essence again. So that architecture right there. And also St. Antonio, Texas. Right. Is one of the award oh. winning. Please, please <laughs> tell me about San Antonio. Hoboken, <laughs> New Jersey. Uh-huh. There are many of them. There, um, uh, there are some examples of success stories. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you rightly pointed out the uh, Truman Show. It is like a bubble. Right. Something that is not possible to, uh, to envelop on, on the level of the entire uh, territories of the United States. Um, uh, I would say, uh, coming back uh, from small country and f- Europe is relatively um, also continent of small cities. We are not speaking about mega cities. We are not speaking um, uh, about the experiences um, uh, of tradition and 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 uh, maybe towns that would be rooted in. In, in the location for thousands of years. We just mentioned uh, Constantinople slash Istanbul. Nowadays, m- mega city, more than 10 million citizens are living, and there is still this sense of tradition or presence or uh, neighborhoods that are walkable right. where, where children can play outside. Uh, um, and uh, we're living in a society where in certain neighborhoods you simply don't see children playing outside oh, <laughs> and playing yeah. ball. And, and that's why I said uh, it's also related to, to gender and to age quite often. Uh, we'll look at American cities that they're really for young, healthy, in, 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 uh, in full of power and control. And uh, quite often we don't see other others in a society. So it's really this beautiful uh, ideological uh, aspect of new urbanism bringing this kind of experience to the United States that is relatively young country right. as, we, as we know it. And then in uh, San Antonio in Texas, in the <laughs> downtown area, um, uh, uh, there is this idea that you will have uh, uh, a walk uh, uh, close to the water, uh, having different kinds of restaurants, uh, having different kinds of 
uh, art, uh, art galleries, shops, experiences, um, and that everything can be done uh, within a relatively um, acceptable walk for most of people, 20 to 30 minutes. And this is this walkable distance, walkable neighborhoods where you can go to the post office, where you can go to the school, where you can go to the groceries, and that you're not entirely bound to use a car. Uh, and the, um, uh, one example, I have to say that when I visited most of these locations, because I'm really interested in, in uh, holistic experiences, um, I was a little bit disappointed. For example, in, in uh, San Antonio in Texas, it's all gorgeous, but because of humidity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know? my God. Tell me about it. <laughs> oh. You know, God. you do it mostly as a tourist, but I don't know if I were living in, in, in San Antonio that I it's would tough. use. It, it becomes <laughs> tough. So that's why sometimes you realize you have to take into consideration also the climate and how right. it is done. The densities, new urbanism can be done um, uh, with high densities, both of people and built structures uh, with uh, much less densities. But uh, this is exactly this point that uh, uh, architects are quite often trained also uh, as uh, people working in urban design. And um, it takes a lot in terms of variables that you can bring forward and uh, what you can accomplish. And... Um, Sometimes even if it is testing the waters, I think it's good because we all know in Louisiana it was impossible to live before the invention of air conditioning system. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. and, and now we have oh. electric cars <laughs> and everything is moving forward. But uh, sometimes it takes this leap of faith. Right. You call it religiosity, you can call it arrogance, True. as you wish. And I think all these examples of new urbanism in, in the United States are mostly small scale. Some of them are more successful than others. Some of them are literally put into uh, into harsh critique, parody, like uh, Truman Show. And there are elements in, in also understanding that you cannot provide all the variables. It right. becomes so controllable that the idea of freedom uh, and what it is is then questioned. Um, but on the other hand, we have quite a few examples that are inspiring. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, I think that all speaks to the importance of creating spaces where people can simply walk mm -hmm. and go mm -hmm. wherever mm -hmm. they want. Mm -hmm. Professor Robert Barsky, he is, I think, on sabbatical now, mm -hmm. but I took a class with him mm -hmm. last semester called, uh, in French literature, mm -hmm. and I believe he was telling us that one of his students went on to design the Georgia Beltline. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, I believe, 26-mile-long mm -hmm. trail in Atlanta mm -hmm. that connects various parts of the neighborhoods, the mm -hmm. north, mm -hmm. the west, east, and mm -hmm. south side. There is Washington, D.C. about line. Sure. So. <laughs> I did not know that. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Well, so this mm -hmm. idea of being able to walk mm -hmm. through the diversity of a city, mm -hmm. it's it's something that hopefully the United States keeps working on and keep mm -hmm. adding. In the United States, for example, uh, Washington, D.C. about line was harshly critiqued because uh, uh, it was also seen as being very closely tied to the socialist ideas. Interesting. So it became very, very contested topic in political arena. Is that because you can't, because in socialist countries, owning a car is impossible? Uh, so. uh, um, it was also related to many of the ideas um, that can be considered like progressive, mm. leftist, and... Yeah. Uh, and um, 
and and the notion of, of freedom and regulations. So um, just to, to give a heads up, it's extremely um, politically sensitive topic in the United States, uh, beyond recognition in some other parts of the world. Wow, that is, I would never <laughs> expect that from a trail. <laughs> what is left that isn't politicized? Mm, that's the question. But uh, now I want to come back home mm -hmm. to Nashville, mm -hmm. or now my mm -hmm. new home. Mm -hmm. What is architecture in Nashville like? Different and diverse again. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was uh, uh, I was living in Nashville uh, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Completely different experience than today, right. coming back after uh, uh, two decades. Um, it is different. <laughs> it, it, the city became uh, huge. Uh, when I was living in Nashville 20 years ago, Spring, uh, Cold Springs didn't exist. Wow. Just to give an idea. <laughs> uh, it was known as a country music mecca. Mm. Uh, today it is literally music mecca, full yeah, stop for, right. for musicians, uh, but also for big tech companies and uh, and um, uh, it's also a health center in its own right uh, when we speak about urban layers. Mm -hmm. So extremely, extremely diverse. Um, uh, the population is also diverse. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, if I would ask for a rye bread, everybody will ask immediately the second question, are you Russian? And, <laughs> and now, and now, I and, ask and, for rye bread. <laughs> yeah, but this is 20 years uh, uh, later. And uh, it, it was Panera that was multicultural, <laughs> multi-ethnic in that regard. And nowadays it's almost a given. Every grocery store will have a, a variety of food coming across the world and there will be not even a section that will be titled ethnic section. Right, so right. It, uh, it's uh, giving us an idea how the, the cities are changing and, and uh, you have one experience maybe that you cherish at some point of time that you that you visit and then you come in. It's the same Nashville, it's the same city and the experiences can be completely different. And this is the beauty again about architecture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I apologize, I'm holding you back a lot. No, no, no. So maybe speed up a little bit, but what is gentrification like? Well, gentrification. Or what is gentrification? Yeah, right. gentrification is generally un understood again from this business perspective, mm. uh, bringing wealthy owners or a wealthy residents into the part of the city um, um, that is not so uh, economically. Um, uh, standing at the point and in United States again it would get multiple political layers um, uh, I, I remember when uh, we were uh, students in New Jersey and then we moved uh, for a short period of time to Philadelphia and we were just searching for for a house for a place to stay and uh, for my husband and myself the most important was to find a good home a place where we would feel confident, where we can walk to the grocery store when the, the apartment will have plenty of light and uh, where we would have access to the parks and the like. So we ended up uh, in a neighborhood um, that was predominantly black. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, some of my neighbors told us, oh no, you, you, you just came, you're going to gentrify this. <laughs> uh -huh. And it's only because it was attached with the notion 
of the color of the skin. Right. At the time, we are really, really poor. <laughs> we are really not <laughs> Trust doing me, we're not going to start a business here. <laughs> we are not, but uh, essentially gentrification is very often associated with displacement of the people who were actually originally in, in, the, in the neighborhood, in the area, and this is why it would get these uh, negative connotations and, um, and multiple meanings. Uh, and within the perspective of new urbanism, it would rather f- function in a way that it is regulated somehow. Uh, for example, we can even mention some tiny examples in New York. If you're renting apartment in New York for a long period of time, regardless of the change of the prices of the rentals, your rent will stay the same. And that would allow um, people who were living in the neighborhood over a long period of time to stay in the neighborhood that they love, um, that they consider to be their home. But these are just tiny ideas how uh, n- new urbanism can promote uh, diversity and uh, um, and uh, even residents of uh, people of different economic backgrounds and, uh, and possibilities. And it's also changing in our society quite often. Um, but um, uh, I would say this is in a nutshell how I see gentrification in the United States and why it is so sensitive. Because it would very often involve the displacement of people who also consider that location their home. So the displacement happens how? Well, all of a sudden you have, um, uh, for example, uh, investors Mm. who want to make a big business, who would like to invest in... um, in, in structures, maybe occasionally even residences, the prices are going up. Those uh, who don't have uh, the same financial means or who cannot compete, they simply need to move out. They're literally spaced out. And that's the the price of rent goes up or is it the property taxes? Pra- property taxes, pr- prices value or val- yeah. values of, uh, of the... And in cities, uh, quite often they think that the buildings are the most expensive. It is the location. This is the famous location, location, location. And, and then um, uh, this is uh, something that can happen within questions of months. We have just seen one of the right. shocking experiences of the housing market. Right. And um, uh, sometimes it can happen over years. We don't speak about the rural parts of uh, America. Yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a big big topic. Uh, I don't want to get too <laughs> deep into it, but here's a stupid question: <laughs> People who are living in these downtrodden neighborhoods, <laughs> and once some businesses move in, start upgrading, and the property values go up, <laughs> it, why don't the people who are living there sell it for a profit that's much higher than they bought it for and move somewhere else? They move. But, <laughs> yeah, they move. Sometimes they do move. Sometimes this is what happens. Right, but but it, very often they cannot come back. Okay, mm-hmm. so yes, so there's no mm-hmm. area that they can move to that is economically affordable, mm-hmm. right? Because it's sometimes it's hard for me to wrap my brain mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. it because it is a stupid question. Because it's it's not stupid. It's it's uh, it's sometimes that we don't think about this. Mm-hmm. How it, all of a sudden many of the downtown areas in many American cities are literally empty after five o'clock. Right, right. Yeah, 12, 12 South, 12th mm-hmm. Avenue, that's gentrified, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What book recommendations do you have for people who are interested in architecture? <laughs> 
I think that the answer will be extremely long, <laughs> especially. Okay. Because, but uh, some uh, a few. But I can recommend uh, something uh, that is not related to architecture. All right, go ahead. Um, because I was thinking, what would be the books that I would take um, just for fun? And I always, I, I always think about Efren Kishon because um, uh, he is uh, um, uh, a writer of, uh, of satirical novels, parodies, um, and I have this personal attachment, one of the most published, most written uh, authors. Uh, it has nothing to do uh, with architecture. It actually has to do with human relations and, and humankind and quite often touching uh, uh, very sensitive c uh, questions like religion and politics. Uh, uh, um, and uh, uh, for me, uh, the, his books are always bringing smile. <laughs> and laugh uh, even in, in the moments of despair and when it is extremely difficult to just grasp uh, um, the difficulty of the moment. And uh, in my case, I became um, familiar with his writings uh, um, as a kid because very often I would end up in a hospital and in a system where parents were not allowed to stay with you at the hospital and my mother will choose something that I can laugh. So I will be in a hospital room and I will laugh all day long. And uh, definitely if somebody is asking me, uh, what would you recommend? I would say, Yoshmalo uh, Paistina, which is a, a book that is translated in my native language. It's almost the truth. So we spoke a lot about scientists who are deemed in our society as people who are extremely objective. Everything is just hardcore that is measurable, quantifiable, everything can be put in numbers. Then we speak about humanists who are uh, a little bit exp uh, trying to understand uh, um, uh, uh, the human uh, nature itself or, uh, uh, to present the world around us. And then we speak, uh, uh, I think, about these other people who are just bringing joy <laughs> <laughs> with no big attachment, right. just love and, and, and right. enjoy every moment of your life that you have. And in terms of architectural books, uh, you know, we, we recently moved and then I realized um, we have officially 10,000 pounds of books. Wow. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, and we came to United States 20 <gasps> years ago with 40 kilos. Wow. approximately 80 pounds of books and we left two big libraries back at home <laughs> and 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 our parents would usually ask okay when are you coming back to take your libraries and uh when the movers uh, moved us uh, uh, they asked okay tell me honestly did you read every single of this book and i would say I, at least i have some kind of knowledge mm. because i actually do know that i have two or three copies of the same book right. so and so um that's why i said the 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 roster the list will be extremely a long one mm. <laughs> and can you remind me what the name of the book was the first one you mentioned uh, uh um i don't know in english yoshmalo paistina efraim kishan he is, uh, uh, he is a Jewish uh, uh, writer uh, born in Hungary, and uh, uh, I can I can uh, give you a reference. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was going to ask my friend who's taking Russian. He will probably try to translate it. Yeah. <laughs> what single skill has led you to garner success in your life? I don't think that I'm successful. <laughs> oh, sure you are. What is the one skill that has helped you to 
be able to think in the way you've been able to think, to be able to publish the things you've done, to be able to work at Vanderbilt, to be able to read that many books, to be able to do, to create this framework, to create this ideology, this theory and framework of viewing the world. I know. Uh, uh, I I really don't think uh, about myself that uh, uh, that I'm successful anyhow. <laughs> so You're being very <laughs> modest. <laughs> and and uh, I can maybe speak about uh, some some uh, some aspects of myself that I think I value okay. that are maybe not valuable to to some other people, but. Um, they're genuine. I really love people, mm. and I, I really, um, even if I'm most of my time introvert, <laughs> working on my projects, reading books, and 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 and, uh, and uh, not having like a, uh, a lot of people around me, I I am really interested in humankind, and I would say the. Um, the upbringing that my family uh, uh, gave me allowed me to approach every single person for the first time as a unique individual, never to have biases, never to judge anyone. And uh, I would say uh, learning over time to be less and less judgmental is helping me personally. <laughs> I don't know how others are looking uh, at me, but I would say this is something that I think is something that I'm cultivating and then trying to cultivate sounds like success to me here's my final question why this is the this is the million dollar question why is architecture important we occupy space <laughs> and again going back going going back to who we are as as people and and humans so we even mentioned virtual space a couple of times and uh, and our projection of what after, what, uh, what beyond our presence, but we are living in, in time and space, and that's why architecture is important. Uh, going back to the first uh, introductory question that you had for me, what is architecture? That it is a discipline that deals both with space and time, mm -hmm. and this is why it's important. It's always where we are. <laughs> and this is also how uh, architects are simply free to speak about their personal space, the space uh, framed by buildings, but um, it, it really is important as long as we have humankind. Thank you very much, Professor Vigdanovich, mm -hmm. for joining me today. That was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you all for joining me this week. If you're interested in anything Professor Vigdanovich said, she obviously teaches here, so if you can get into one of her classes, uh, they are usually booked out pretty quickly. There will be no new episodes next week, but the week after we will be back with Professor Hodges and we'll explore American literature and philosophy. Really looking forward to that and I hope you will be too. See you then.